And at the birth of Christ, the Magi were still familiar with those prophecies, still living in anticipation of them, and God appeared to them in the form of the Shekinah to indicate that it had happened. The Messiah had been born. That's why they came searching. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How did God use the birth of Jesus to reach a group of pagan wise men? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of Let Earth Receive Her King. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker, Wise Men Still Seek Him. Well, in a sense, that's true. But the reason these wise men came from the East seeking Jesus is because God had first sought them. When Jesus was born, he sent them a supernatural sign that the promised king had been born. God directed them where to find this child. Is he doing the same to you, friend? Is he calling you through his word to search for and follow Christ? Will you respond to his call this Christmas season? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. There was no doubt to them that this king they came seeking had already been born. Notice they don't say, we come try to find, to find him who will be king of the Jews, but rather the one who is born already to be. He already exists as the king of the Jews. Their question isn't when, but where. Now, what's interesting about the Magi and this understanding of a coming king is when you step back from biblical history and you look at secular history over the same time period, you find that there was this anticipation of a coming world leader who would arise out of Judea. In both, and I read them both this week, in both Suetonius and Tacitus, Roman historians of the first century, they tell us that that time that we refer to as the change of eras between B.C. and A.D., in other words, around the time of Christ, there was a general expectation of a world ruler who would arise from Judea. So the Magi then weren't asking about the birth of just another ordinary run-of-the-mill king of the Jews. No, they came understanding this this concept of a world ruler that would somehow arise out of the land of Israel. We see that even in our text. Notice in verse 2, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What do they mean by that? Well, we we have it explained to us in verse 4. Because gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod, having heard about all their questioning, inquired of the leaders, notice this, where not the king of the Jews was to be born, but where whom was to be born? The Messiah. That was what was really going on here. These men had come to Jerusalem because they were convinced that Israel's greatest king, the divine Messiah, had been born. How did they know that? 
Verse 2 goes on to say, For because, here's why we're seeking him, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. A better translation of that might be that uh, of the ESV, which says, We saw his star at its rising, or we saw his star when it rose. There's a star connected to the birth of the Messiah. Now, that shouldn't surprise any student of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy that connects a star with the birth of the Messiah. It's an unusual prophecy. It's found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It is the prophecy of Balaam, who was not a prophet of God, but whom God used to speak truth to his people. And Balaam has a prophecy in Numbers 24, 17 about Messiah... And this is how it reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. That passage has been understood by the Jews as well as by by Christians to be a messianic prophecy. A prophecy about the Messiah. And it connects a star with the coming of of Messiah, as well as a scepter. He'll obviously be a ruler. So what exactly then, here in our text in Matthew 2, was the star that the Magi saw? Well, as you know, there's there's been a lot written, a lot of argument about what the star was. Let me give you the most common answers to the question, what is the star? Some say it was a unique alignment of the planets. And that did happen, by the way, in 7 B.C., when Jupiter and Saturn aligned with with just about a moon's breadth between them. would have been a bright specter on the horizon. And some say that's what it was. Others think that this star that they saw was a comet. And again, we can trace back in history, a comet did appear in the years 11 and 12 B.C., but of course, that would have been too early. Still others say, no, it wasn't those things. It was a supernova. It was the explosion of a star in distant space and that bright light that lingers sometimes for several months after the explosion of a star. But frankly, it's unlikely that it was any of those things. It's unlikely that it was anything up in the space and the outer heavens themselves. Why? Look at verse 9. The star went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Whatever the star was, it moved in front of them the six miles from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. And perhaps, and the text is a little unclear, perhaps even indicated which house. Clearly, this was a supernatural phenomenon that in some way resembled a star. It might have been something that God miraculously created for this very event. We just can't be certain. But personally, I think the most likely explanation that supports the surrounding context is that this star was nothing less than the Shekinah glory cloud. It was that blazing manifestation of God's presence that led the people of Israel through the desert, appearing as a blazing cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. That blazing display of the presence of God that took up residence in the Old Testament tabernacle and later in the temple. Why do I say that? 
because something exactly like this had also appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. Listen to Luke 2.9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's what happened to the shepherds. They saw the Shekinah. They saw the glory of God, that blazing display of the glory of God, terrified them. And I think it's likely to assume that it was that same manifestation that by God's sovereign providence, the Magi saw while they were still in their own country in Babylon at the the time of the birth of Christ. But whatever the star was, we can't be certain, whatever it was, it indicated to them that the time had come for a the unique king of the Jews, the divine Messiah, to be born. That raises really the most important question of all, and that is, how did they know? How did they know about the Messiah? Remember, these are idolaters. These are pagans. They're into Zoroastrianism and divination and the occult. How did they come to know about this special king, the Messiah that would be born in Israel? The star provided them with the timing, but that doesn't answer the question, how did they know about the Messiah at all? Well, I think we can piece this together biblically. Remember that they came from the east. We know that much for sure. Likely Babylon. 600 years before the birth of Christ, in the year 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had attacked the southern part of Israel, made up primarily of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and he had carried most of those people off into captivity back to Babylon. Fifty years after Nebuchadnezzar had captured them, the Medes and the Persians in turn overran Babylon, and their leader, a man named Cyrus, allowed the Jews to repatriate, to go back to their home country. But here's what's interesting. Most of the Jews never did. We have the record of how many returned, and it was a small number compared to the number that were in Babylon. Many of the Jews continued to live throughout that area where these magi would eventually come from. For more than 500 years, Devout Jews had lived in that region, had shared their scriptures and the promise of the coming Messiah with the people among whom they had lived. But I think there's another even more compelling way these people knew. It's Daniel. Remember Daniel's prophecy? Daniel is taken in that earliest time by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. And he's there through his entire ministry. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. You remember? And he sent for the Magi of Babylon to tell him what the dream was and to explain it. None of them could do so, so he commanded they all be killed. And when they come to Daniel and his friends to execute them, Daniel asks for more time, and you remember the story, God reveals to him both the dream and its meaning. And as a reward, Nebuchadnezzar does something fascinating. Turn back to Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. He gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. 
The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and watch this, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now go over to chapter 5. This fast forwards. Nebuchadnezzar's dead. His grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne, the last king of Babylon. The queen mother... Nebuchadnezzar's queen comes in to speak to Belshazzar. Notice what she says in chapter 5 and verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom, speaking of Daniel, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Four categories. And if you look in the Septuagint, you'll find that the Greek word magi is in this verse. Daniel was chief of the magi of Babylon. Undoubtedly, he used his influence to direct those under his authority to the true God. We see records of that even in his own prophecy. He would have certainly shared the Old Testament Scripture with the wise men of Babylon. But even more interesting is think about all that was revealed to Daniel about the Messiah while he was in Babylon. I wish I had time to take you back and walk you through Daniel. But let me just remind you. In, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 36 to 45, Daniel learns that there will be a series of world empires and that those world empires will culminate in an eternal kingdom that God himself will establish. So who's going to rule over that eternal kingdom? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel reveals that that final kingdom will be ruled over by a divine Messiah. He will come up to the Ancient of Days. He'll be like a son of man. And he'll be given a kingdom and dominion that lasts forever. But it even goes further. Again, I wish we could go back and walk through this. But in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26... Daniel even prophesies that the Messiah will come and die at a certain time. If you study Daniel 9, verses 25 and 26, it becomes a simple math problem. And when you work out the math problem, you have Messiah dying in about 30 to 33 A.D. So they knew when Messiah would die. Therefore, they knew about when he would come. And so there was this anticipation, even among the pagan world, of this great world ruler who would come. Where did they hear about that? Through the prophecies of the Old Testament, and specifically through Daniel. Apparently, the truth the Magi had learned from the Jews living among them in Babylon, and from Daniel and his prophecy, continued to influence their thinking, even up to the time of the Messiah. And at the birth of Christ, the Magi were still familiar with those prophecies, still living in anticipation of them, and God appeared to them in the form of the Shekinah to indicate that it had happened. The Messiah had been born. That's why they came searching in Jerusalem 
for the one born king of the Jews. What we will discover is that God in his providence, in his sovereign grace, reached down into the idolatry of Zoroastrianism and ripped these men to himself in grace. But what are the lessons that we can begin to see in this amazing account? These are not the main point of the text. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But what are the lessons we can begin to see in this amazing account? There are three of them that stand out to me. Number one, the Messiah would be rejected by his own people, but Gentiles from the nations would gladly receive and honor him. Here at the very beginning of his life, we see this unfold. Herod, the leaders, the religious leaders of the nation, even the people of Israel are yawning and uninterested. But here come these former idolaters whom God has rescued to worship Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that the the gospel of Matthew begins that way? And how does it end? With Jesus saying to his disciples, go into all the nations and make disciples. We sit here this morning, most of us, as the wonderful example of the grace of God in searching out people from the nations, from every tongue and tribe. This is the Messiah. Secondly, this story, I think, anticipates the suffering Messiah and what he would eventually endure. Think about this. Jesus at this point is less than two years old. And the hostility against him has already reached a murderous pitch. It's also interesting to note that the title that the Magi use for him here in chapter 2, in verse 2, King of the Jews, that title does not appear again in Matthew's gospel until it appears three times in the 27th chapter. Let me show you. Turn to Matthew 27. They come seeking the king of the Jews. The next time we hear of the king of the Jews is here in Matthew 27. Notice verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Yes, I am. Then look at verse 29. After weaving a crown of thorns, the soldiers put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then the third time it appears is in verse 37. They put up above his head the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Do you see what Matthew's telling us? We have a great king But the greatness, the glory, the majesty of our King is most profoundly shown in His suffering for us. This is the greatness of our King. His birth is announced. He is the Messiah, the divine Messiah who's come. And He came to suffer for sinners. Thirdly, the lesson we learn from this text is that Messiah is the king not only of the Jewish people, but of all people. 
I mean, think about it. At his birth, God made this clear. When God chose to announce the arrival of his son, he did so, first of all, through some humble Jewish shepherds in Bethlehem. And then through some powerful and influential Gentiles from modern-day Iran. You see the point? You have humble, salt-of-the-earth Jewish shepherds. And you have kingmaker, powerful, influential Gentiles. You see, regardless of our background, our ethnicity, our external circumstances, God demands that we acknowledge the child in Bethlehem as king. The only proper response to Jesus Christ is to follow His feet in worship because He's the promised one. He's the divine Messiah. He is the only rightful king of the Jews, of the Gentiles, of the nations, of every person. He is your rightful king. Let me ask you, and I really want you to think about this. I really want you to answer this in your mind. Have you ever truly acknowledged Jesus Christ's right to rule you? Have you ever acknowledged Jesus Christ's right to rule you? Have you ever bowed your knee and your heart and your will to His? As we're learning from Romans 4, that's the essence of true saving faith. And I don't care how much you gather to celebrate Christmas. If you have not acknowledged Him as your King, then He's not your King. The real lesson of Christmas is that Jesus Christ is your rightful King. And the key question for you to weigh through this Christmas season is whose response to Jesus in this story best reflects your own. Let me say that again. Whose response in this story best reflects your response to Jesus Christ? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, Tom, of course, I'm a Christian. I acknowledge Jesus as my King. I have bowed my will to His. Well, that's wonderful. So let me ask you, are you living in light of the implications of that? He is your King. So what about how you're living? Are you allowing Jesus to be your king in how you think, in the attitudes you display, in the words you speak, in how you behave, in how you interact with your spouse and with your children and your parents and and with your employer, your employees, at school, your friends? Is Jesus Christ truly your king? He himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? doesn't make any sense. Don't say I'm your king and do what you want to do. So my question to all of us is, are we really living in the light of, under the implication of, Jesus is my rightful king? I am not my own. I have no right to say how I will think about anything. I have no right to say how I will choose and what decisions I will make. I have no right to do anything in an autonomous way. He is my king. Let me encourage you today, if that's what you claim, renew your resolve to follow him as king. That's what genuine faith looks like. And anything short of that, is not genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You've believed in someone else, or you haven't believed at all. 
He is the Messiah and the rightful King. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled, Let Earth Receive Her King. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, Christmas has come and gone and all of the celebrations that are a part of the traditions. But my question to you is, have you recognized Jesus as your Lord? Have you acknowledged him as the one who has the right to your worship, the one before whom, like the wise men, you should fall and give him everything you have? That's my prayer for you as you come out of this Christmas season. Don't lose the central message that Jesus is the hero of the story, not just on December 25th, but every day of the year, every day of your life, and he will be for all eternity. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 